We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is Chris Webster with a quick note before we start the show. Our guest couldn't make it at the very last minute, so we're bringing you something from the archives. This is one of our most listened to episodes, and we think you'll enjoy it. So... Give a listen and be sure to head over to the California Rock Art Foundation website. It's in the show notes. And go over to the APN and check out all the other great shows that we have. On to the show. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'd like to introduce episode 34 to the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. We're going to have Kirk Astroth talk about dating rock art, University of Arizona study, using a variety of state-of-the-art technology to get a relative date on the petroglyphs in the Arizona desert. I think you'll all enjoy it. Welcome to episode 34. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm your host for the Rock Art Podcast. We are blessed and honored to have Kirk Astroth coming to us from Arizona. Isn't that right, Kirk? Yeah, that's right. Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. And Kirk is uh, gracing our Rock Art Podcast, this 34th episode in the series. And he's going to talk a bit about dating Rock art. I know that's a rather controversial topic, but Kirk received his master's degree from the University of Arizona, and his master's research thesis was exactly on that very topic. So, Kirk, without much ado, the first million dollar question to ask you is <laughs> how the heck did you get involved with the study of archaeology, anthropology, Native Americans, and all things rock art? Yeah, good good place to start. Well, I grew up in Utah, and I spent a lot of my time exploring places in southern Utah as a as a kid, teenager, and then a young adult. Because I've always been fascinated with you know ancient ruins, with rock art in particular, and just the history of Utah before it was populated by. Europeans. And so I, I always saw it as an avocation. And like I said, spent a lot of time exploring sites in Southern Utah. And, and while I was in high school, I should say, no one ever told me that you could go into archaeology as, as a field. That was never suggested any time in my high school years. And so when I was getting close to graduating, decided I wanted to study political science and history, went off and, and did that, and eventually became a history teacher at a private school here in Tucson, Arizona. And because of my interest in archaeology and anthropology and ancient life. I was teaching Arizona history, and I found out at the University of Arizona Library, they had a curriculum there called DIG, and it was a way to simulate an archaeological DIG where I was able to split my classes into two groups, and each of them had to create their own civilization or their own society with money, with a belief system, with deities, all, all the things that you would ascribe to society. And then they created artifacts around that belief system and that society and then buried them in a spot out on the school grounds. And each of the classes then were charged with digging up 
these artifacts created by the other class and trying to figure out what their belief system was, a hierarchy, you know, the role of men and women and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I was always interested in archaeology, anthropology in, in those sorts of ways. Where did you grow up, Kirk? Well, south of Salt Lake. Okay. It's now part of the big sprawl, but you know, yeah, it was a rural area at the time. And what did your parents do? What did they think about this obsession that you have <laughs> with history and, and pre-contact indigenous civilizations? Yeah, they weren't much into it. My dad was a businessman and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And they came from a pretty, I guess, traditional background, I'd say. And my my father, because he was in the military, he said his idea of camping out was staying at the Holiday Inn with the window <laughs> open. So, so he wasn't even much into the outdoors. My family didn't, my parents didn't hike. They didn't do any of that stuff. So I found that outlet on my own with other friends. And, you know, they thought it was all very interesting. But, you know, what was I going to do to have a real job? Right. That kind of brings us, so you had an interest in archaeology and you had a, a bit of a, a background just almost as an avocationalist and sort of, you know, sort of a, a familiarity, it sounds like, even trying to teach your class about the field of archaeology. Is that correct, Kurt? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So you so you gave that a shot, but how does that relate back to the, you know, the real world of archaeology and sort of getting to know anything about this field of ours and maybe immersing oneself in uh, either anthropology, archaeology, or the Native American studies, per se? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a convoluted story because I, I taught, as I said, the history, and I taught Arizona history, U.S. history, world history, all these social studies at this school, because I was always very interested in history and and its companion of political science. But I never, I guess at that time, I never knew that there were organizations out there that you could get involved with that were studying anthropology, ancient societies. Even when I lived in Tucson, there was not, for me, a public perception that anybody was really studying or certainly excavating even the Hohokam canals that were so prevalent around this very area. It it just wasn't much in the news and wasn't something on my particular radar screen. So I always treated it as a avocation, like you said, as an amateur. So when I had time off and I went back to Utah and traveled up through Southern Utah, I took time and camped on Cedar Mesa. And I went to the edge of the Cedars Museum and went to other small community museums looking at various artifacts that they had discovered on the surrounding landscape. But I didn't really have, like I say, a full appreciation that anthropology was this fascinating field of study. I mean, I read certain books, of course. I've always been interested in in reading about ancient cultures and tracking down as many books as I could about Chaco Canyon and even Pakime. In fact, I was very influenced when I was teaching this this archaeology unit called Dig by DePeso's concept of the Grand Chichimeca. And yeah, the Chichimeca. I, taught that, I taught that to my students and said, look, there's this there's this whole concept that there was like an empire here in North America that involved all of these different sites. And it was this Grand Chichimeca that was a outgrowth of the Aztecs influencing the northern provinces. And so I always found that very interesting. So how did you then move or connect with the University of Arizona and entertain the notion of studying rock art? Well, yeah, after I taught school here, I went, I went back to school for a, a different master's degree in range management because I thought I was going to work for the BLM or the Forest Service full time, which it was what I was doing as a seasonal employee for a while. Mm -hmm. But as I got close to graduation, my major professor said, oh, you should think about working with the 4-H program because you've got all this experience teaching and Mm -hmm. working in camps and all this stuff. And so I ended up pursuing a career with the Cooperative Extension Service for almost 33 years 
in Montana, here in Arizona, and in Kansas. And then when I was getting close to retirement, I started to wonder, well, what am I going to do with myself? How am I going (laughs) to occupy myself Uh in retirement? And so I started looking around and I I said, look, I've had this this fascination with archaeology all this time. And by that time, archaeology was big here in Tucson. There were all kinds of cultural resource management firms. There was places like Desert Archaeology and Archaeology Southwest. The Amarind Museum was very well known. And so I I thought, well, I'll start volunteering with Archaeology Southwest and see if that's something I'm interested in. And so I was very fortunate to get picked up by them as a volunteer. And I loved it. I was doing road surveys. We were doing petroglyph recording projects. In fact, we did one of the first full recording projects on the Painted Rock petroglyph site. Over 7,000 images out there. Wow. Let's see. Well, I got involved as a site steward. So I was monitoring some sites here. And as I got really close to retirement, the University of Arizona has a very nice program for faculty where you get a 75% tuition waiver. And so I said, I should just go back to school and get a master's in archaeology so I know what I'm talking about, or at least can assume to know what I'm talking about rather than just being this amateur. And so I talked to some folks in the department. They said, sure, take a couple of classes as a non-degreed student, see how you like it. And the very first class I took was with a well-known archaeologist by the name of T.J. Ferguson, and he taught the cultural resource management class, and I absolutely loved it. I found it just fascinating that there was this now this whole field of trying to preserve the past from the inevitable development that's taking place when highways or transmission lines go in. And after taking three classes, uh, I decided to matriculate as a full-time student, mm-hmm. and uh, they all thought I was a little crazy because I already had a couple of other degrees and said, but sure, if you're interested in this, have at it. So I retired in 2016 and went back to school full time then to work on this master's in what's called applied archaeology that was most interested in that and decided to pursue my fascination with rock art. What did they mean by the field of applied archaeology? It's a special degree program that's kind of focused on people that would go into the cultural resource management field. Okay, okay. So, they, yeah, they do a lot of emphasis on uh, NAGPRA and a lot mm-hmm. of the legislation and laws protecting cultural sites, the do's and don'ts. Gotcha. And because I was uh, – I didn't have a strong background in anthropology, I also decided to take some other classes at the local Pima community college because they had some really good hands-on classes. That's where I learned about excavation. We had a ceramics class. It did the human and animal osteology, studying the bones. So I filled in some gaps in my background doing that. And I also did my internship at the tree ring lab because I got very interested in tree ring dating. So after taking a tree ring class and a field component in dendro. Sounds like you had the full immersion experience (laughs) almost instantaneously, the whole enchilada. Yeah. So you're in the implied uh, archaeology department. You're going for a master's degree, uh, one of the, one of several. You've already completed several yeah. master's degrees and others. How did you get from that point to the specific subject matter of dating rock art, dating petroglyph sites? That's a very specific subject. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, I told you before, I was always been interested in rock art, rock imagery, pictographs, petroglyphs, that stuff always fascinated me. And it always caused me like many people to look at it and wonder, what does this mean? What, who was the person that made this? What were they trying to communicate or suggest? And so early on in that master's degree program, I had to identify something that I would do for a research project. And 
there's very few people in the department that have any experience in rock art, but the archaeologist I worked under at Archaeology Southwest, rock art was his specialty, Aaron Wright. He did a definitive study on the rock art up at uh, South Mountain in Phoenix. I had a lot of respect for him and I did a lot of volunteer work under him. And so I went to him and said, Aaron, you know, I really want to do something related to rock art for master's research. Do you have any ideas? And he, he said, yeah, I tried to do some dating with a light meter, but I've always wondered if you couldn't use some other technologies to do some relative dating on rock art based on varnish and use varnish as a proxy for antiquity or for age and see what you come up with. And I was, I was intrigued by that because I wanted to do a project in archaeology that had a strong science base to it. I didn't want to do something that was a little more allegorical or even historical. I wanted to do something that would involve some hard science. So it sounds like you became uh, somewhat passionate about applying scientific principles, scientific methodology to the study of rock art, Aaron Wright, who is a, a big name, you know, he, he published an important book on rock art dating, I believe, amongst O'Kam or the O'Kam. Yes. Yep. And Religion on the Rocks, it's yes, called. Yes, Religion on the Rocks. And believe it or not, I attempted to read that book and could not understand it. <laughs> so, yeah. so I uh, have followed his career from Hither and Yon. But it sounds like he was uh, instrumental in having you consider that data set. Am I correct? Yes, very much so. And he was very supportive. And even though he doesn't teach or have a faculty position at the University of Arizona, I think my major professor, T.J. Ferguson, understood that I really needed someone with a strong background in petroglyphs and pictographs to serve on that committee. So they opened doors and allowed him to serve on my committee. Yeah, and I I bet that was pivotal for you, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, very much so. Well, I think we've used up this first installment, uh, understanding the context and development of your thoughts on dating of rock art. Well, I think in the uh, next segment... Why don't we attempt to explain a little bit about the rock art that's the subject of your thesis? And what about that pesky stuff they call desert varnish? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see you all in the flip-flop. Thank you, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome all you listeners in podcast land. This is the second segment of our 34th episode of the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we are blessed and honored to have Kirk Astroth, who is a uh, rock art scholar who completed his master's thesis at the University of Arizona on the dating of rock drawings, petroglyphs. 
So in the, in the first segment, we kind of traced uh, your interest and your background. I think this segment we're going to open up to the uh, subject of rock art dating and the specifics of the sites that you have studied and what makes them interesting and significant. All right. Well, yes, as I said, I was very interested in doing a research project around dating of rock art, and we still can't absolutely date petroglyphs, as many people know. I haven't found a way to do that, but there are some, there have been many attempts to create a relative dating on petroglyphs, basically to say this is older than that. And I won't go through all the different approaches that have been tried. But what I decided to do was to use something fairly controversial in the field, which is to use dated graffiti as a baseline for analyzing the color of varnish. Now, what is, what is desert varnish specifically, Kirk? I know we we began thinking about this, and it's been a subject that we've mentioned in passing. But I guess there's a number of different perspectives on the characteristics and the origin of desert varnish. Yes, yes, and and I will preface what I'm going to say by indicating that varnish is something that's still really not well understood, and that's something that was reaffirmed out of my research. And so there's, there is a huge field out there still to be explored around rock varnish. But rock varnish typically occurs in arid climates, and it's the result of clay-borne particles that include iron and manganese that are affixed to the surface of certain rocks. Which rocks are they affixed to, mainly? Well, mainly granite, but also basalt and on sandstone. But granite is one that is quite prevalent for rock varnish, and as well as, you know, people that live in southern Utah, they talk about that rock varnish when they go into canyon lands and other places, they see that black, you know, kind of, some people call it a patina on the rocks. And that's, that's what rock varnish is. There's also a belief that Part of that process involves a biotic component where small microscopic critters excrete these casings that combine with that manganese and iron to create that color. And the higher the component of manganese, the blacker it is, the higher component of iron, the redder that varnish is. So for those who haven't seen this desert varnish, I know that it, as you say, it comes in different colors. I've seen a blue a black, a brown, a, a red, all kinds of different hues. Am I correct? Yes. And that's all based on the chemical component of manganese, iron, and some of the other things that are involved in creating that varnish. Now, what happens as this varnish ages? Well, it gets darker. At least that's what we believe. And that was one of the, the, the ideas I tried to explore in my thesis. The common belief out there in archaeology is that the darker a petroglyph is, in, in terms of its varnish, the older it is. No one has really systematically tested that out in the field. But the common belief is the darker these petroglyphs appear means that they're older. And that's one of the things I decided to try to investigate. So how does one create a petroglyph and what does it look like when it's fresh versus when it ages or when it gets to be extremely old? How does how does one how does one do that? That's a good question. Well, you take another rock, for instance, maybe a, a piece of bone, and you peck at the surface of a rock that has that dark varnish already on it, and you expose the underlying rock that hasn't been exposed to this clay-borne iron and manganese particles. So it gets down to the parent rock. And that's why you can see petroglyphs is that this lighter colored parent rock is exposed to the environment. But we know almost as soon as that's exposed, it begins to varnish over. Now, some people would say it re-varnishes, and I don't want to get into semantics too much, but because it was never varnished in the first place, that parent rock, we try to say it gets varnished rather than re-varnished. Some people say it's repatinated, but I don't think that that's true either. It's being varnished for the first time because it's being exposed 
to an environment that it was never exposed to before. So what are the major components of this varnish? What's the chemistry of it and what are the, what are the key factors that allow it to get dark like that? Yeah, it, like I said, it's manganese, clay, and iron. And the manganese, as it oxidizes, or the iron, as it oxidizes, changes colors. The manganese is what lends the black color to it, and the iron is what lends a reddish color to it. And then you get all kinds of gradations in between. And then your your particular set of hypotheses or, or testing strategies, scientific measurements, what had you proposed to do? What specific technologies were you going to apply and how were those going to develop relative ages for the imagery? Yeah, another good question, of course. Well, one of the things that I decided to do with Aaron's encouragement was to use dated graffiti, things that have been pecked on rocks by recent Europeans and Americans on the same sites where ancient petroglyphs exist, so that we would have some sort of temporal comparison there. And what I decided to do was to identify three different sites in Arizona and use three different technologies to analyze the darkness of that varnish. I picked three sites, not because I'm going to try to compare those, because we know in archaeology there's enough environmental differences between sites that you can't compare sites that are even, you know, 20 miles apart. The environmental conditions are so different with rainfall, humidity, temperature, all kinds of things, even aspect and exposure. So what I did was pick three sites that had a large number of dated graffiti images, as well as a large number of indigenous petroglyphs. And first of all, I used a light meter, which measures the reflectance off of that groove where the petroglyph had been made. I used digital photography that was corrected in Photoshop for uh, color to also analyze the same images. And those two techniques, before I mention the third one, were previous strategies used by other researchers. So I tried to replicate exactly their techniques on these dated and undated ancient images. And then, What had other researchers concluded about using these methods on rock art relative dating? Well, f first, if I talk about the digital photography, that was pioneered in a very experimental, a limited survey by Bednarik in Australia on only seven images. And he had some dates on some and uh, no dates on others. But he suggested that you could develop a fairly reliable relative chronology from oldest to youngest based on the analyzing the red, blue, and green values of these digital photographs recorrected to the IFRO color card. Explain to them what IFRO It's the International Federation of Rock Art Organizations. That is correct. And who is this Robert Bednarik character? He's a well-known researcher <laughs> in Australia that has done lots of research on petroglyphs. So the guy is very prolific. He runs the Australian Rock Art Association and also edits a journal that comes out, I think, twice a year that reports on rock art research all over the world. So he's a fairly prestigious character that you're following yep. in his footsteps to use his technique to... Test it out and see if it yes. applies to some of these Arizona petroglyphs. Yes. I had many conversations over email of me trying to tease out from him the strategies that he used and the techniques so Fantastic. I could uh, precisely replicate what he had done in Australia. The other, the other technique with the light meter, Aaron Wright and Whitley had both used that, as well as a graduate student in Colorado by the name of Craig Brazu. The light meter is fairly simple. You take a reading on the rock itself where the, the original varnish is, and then you take a reading in the groove, and you compare those, and you get this light reflectance ratio. And Aaron and Craig both, and I think Whitley, 
said that was a fairly reliable method for discerning the differences in the color of varnish based on age of the images. Okay. So I tried to rep- replicate that as well. And I think you had a third technique, didn't you? Yes. That's the thing that made this study particularly unique. We found out that there's this technology called a spectrophotometer, and it's actually used in industrial manufacturing by companies that, let's say, they produce something that's blue, and they want to make sure that each and every one of those products is the same color blue, and the machines don't change, and the tint is exactly the same from one to another. So we decided to use the spectrophotometer here in archaeology, and it measures, again, the darkness of varnish on a scale of 0 to 100, with 100 being being white and 0 being black. It's better than a light meter or even digital photography because it's a self-contained unit. You actually place the eye of the spectrophotometer over the groove in a petroglyph, and it shoots an infrared beam of xeon light onto the groove and bounces it back into the machine and analyzes it. So it's not affected by ambient sunlight. You don't have to shade anything. And you can quickly collect a number of data points off every petroglyph or piece of dated graffiti, and it saves it in the machine digitally, so all you have to do is download the data at a later time. So it sounds like it's very quantifiable, it's very operational, it's it's, uh, reproducible as well, and so that kind of a metric would would be certainly applicable scientifically to the way in which we'd like to evaluate the ages of glyphs. Now... I presume it's a portable machine. Is it very expensive? (laughs) Well, you're right. It is portable. It's very nice that way. And you can charge it each night after you're done using it. But it's very expensive. The unit that we used was $10,000. So not something that everybody's going to go out and buy. (laughs) But still, it seems like it, it would have applicability to this kind of study and might allow us to replicate and measurably develop some sort of metric for the the testing and evaluation of the age of the petroglyphs. Yes. And one thing I should mention is after I used it halfway through the research project, because again, because nobody's ever used this in archaeology before, and the company was just floored that anybody was going to try this with this instrument that was used for a whole different purpose. I found out later that the instrument, if you set it up right, will actually calculate what, what they call a Y value, which is an illuminance value, which is very similar to what you get from the light meter. It's a ratio that combines all these readings into one value. And I, I like I said, I found out about that too late, but I sincerely believe that there's lots of potential to use this particular instrument by collecting this Y value from digital readings on petroglyphs to develop this relative chronology of old versus youngest. Sounds fabulous. Sounds like a very, very interesting study and one that could pay off in great dividends to allow us to better sort some of these images vis-a-vis the relative age, as you call it, from the oldest to the youngest and those that are intermediate. We're, we're almost out of time on this second segment, but I think in the third segment, I'd like to get down to the nitty gritty of what you discerned, what were your conclusions, what were your discoveries along the way, and how might other archaeologists use what you've developed from your thesis? Yeah. Yeah, and one one thing I should mention, too, one of the reasons for using these three different instruments was to see if they compared, if they came up with the same sorts of readings. So it was kind of a compare and contrast aspect to this research, too. If you're using three technologies all on the same images, do they provide you with consistency? Fantastic. We can talk about that in the third segment. All right. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to segment three of the Rock Art Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we have as our guest scholar today, Kirk Astroth, who is talking about our favorite subject, one of them, the dating of rock art, a controversial topic and one that's near and dear to all of our hearts. Kirk, on the first segment and the second segment, you got into some of the nitty gritty details. On this final segment, let's take a look at the conclusions, the results, the uh, comparison test, and what you may have discovered and what you may have learned from going through all this. How long did it take you to do your whole thesis, just as a curiosity? Oh, let's see. It took about six months. A large part of that was just getting the permits from ah. the various governmental entities to do the research out there. And I that see. took longer than I anticipated. Okay. And then when you were out there, how many days or hours did the uh, date, dating itself take? Oh, it was five weeks. Yeah. Okay. Because there was, yeah, so much work to do. And some of the sites were very distant from where I lived. And it was difficult to locate some of the dated graffiti Got it. at a couple of the sites because the UTMs, the GPS coordinates were not very precise. In some cases, they were far off the mark. So there were a lot of wandering around looking for dated images. How many glyph elements did you date? A total about 80. Okay, nice. Yeah. So then the million dollar question is, what did you find out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I found out a number of things. The big thing I found out is that the time period for dated graffitis just isn't long enough at this point for any of these technologies to be able to discern a relative chronology for them. For instance, even on some of the sites where there were images dated, for instance, 1972, the instrument gave back a reading that showed it was darker than something from 1885. Wow. Which just doesn't make sense. So I, I used four different statistical procedures to analyze this data. The first two were focused just on the dated graffiti. So mm -hmm. I did correlation analysis and regression. And basically, again, without boring your audience or getting too deep in the weeds, the relationships were contrary to what we would believe in many cases. So for the dated graffiti, it didn't help. Now, what about the rest of the sample vis-a-vis -vis the images that we know are pre-contact and have some antiquity to them. Yeah. The first thing uh, showed, which was very reaffirming, is that the ancient images proved to be darker on the whole than the dated images. There was definitely strong statistically significant differences between the ancient or indigenous petroglyphs versus the dated graffiti. What was interesting is those statistically significant differences varied by site and by technology. For instance, at Tumamak Hill, which is a large site right outside of Tucson here, it originally, I was told, had 120 dated graffiti images. But because so many of them were small and narrow, I couldn't analyze the grooves with the existing technology. And so my sample size was greatly reduced and none of the technologies were able to show statistically significant differences at the Tumamak Hill site okay. because sample size was small, groove width was very small, but it was different at Painted Rock and at the Kokoraki Butte, that the various technologies show statistically significant differences between the ancient and the, the dated images. So we say, aha, so the new stuff is new and the old stuff is old. So yeah. what? Where's the beef? Where's the whole Where's enchilada? The yeah. Well, beef maybe uh, might be just in that, which isn't really astounding. But like I started off saying, the conventional wisdom is the darker a petroglyph is, the 
older it has to be. I think we can definitely say that now. This research it kind of validates some of the stuff that Wright did, as well as David Whitley and Craig Brazu that said the darker an image, the older it tends to be. The trouble is I didn't have a large enough data set for even the ancient ones where I could develop a good seriation of oldest to more recent, even post-contact. So a lot of what came out of my study, I think, are some really good directions or possibilities for further research that would, I think, significantly add to the field. For instance, we know that varnish formation is still not well understood. And some researchers like Robert Bednarik suggest that varnish formation is influenced by the depth and width of the petroglyphs themselves. So another study could really begin to use some measuring tools to sort petroglyphs by depth and width and then compare those readings, particularly using the spectrophotometer uh, to see if there's some differences there. One of the other issues I've learned in this whole process is that IFRO color card from the International Federation of Rock Art Organizations is not well suited to current research in the field. It has a glossy sheen to it, and often it was washed out in some of the digital photographs I took, so I wasn't able to color correct on some of those photographs to do the detailed digital analysis. And I began to use different color cards. There's several out in the field, but visiting with people like at the Shumla Institute Mm -hmm. and other places, they're using this color checker passport as a different color card. I learned that professional photographers are using something called a DGK color card, which I got and used in some of my photographs towards the end of my study just to see if there was better color saturation with those color cards. And and there is. And I visited with Robert Bednarik about the problems with the IFRO card, and he said that they are making some changes with that. So what kind of color card you use is is very important. The another thing I learned is that varnish growth rates, even on the same rock, are uneven and nonlinear and often random. Now, David Whitley in one of his research suggests that the process of varnish formation on petroglyphs is linear. I disagree with that, but he and I may may just have to agree to disagree. But I found that even with on the same image, some parts of a petroglyph are varnished much darker than others. And it's not. it was not clear to me why certain parts of an image got varnished more than another part. And part of it has to do with the technique expressed by the artist. Some of them, these petroglyphs and even some of the dated images are more abraded, scratched than they are deeply incised or, or pecked into the rock. Those are the easiest ones to analyze. But these abraded images or scratched images, there's too much of the parent varnish mm. that's left on the rock yes. that gets picked up by these analytical tools. Yes, and, and sometimes even because you're working with granite, there's mica flecks in the rock, and the instruments are picking up that as a part of the color component rather than the actual varnish. So, Well, I can echo your the results of one of your conclusions because... When we did our study on the uh, Koso rock art on the basalt canvas, we found there was a, call it the old varnish problem. Oh, yeah. And that some, some of the rock art, because of the vesicles, the little holes that exist in the rock canvas, they brought up the old varnish and they provided ages that were too old extraordinarily too old because you're picking up that much older parent varnish that is on the canvas itself and not within the interstices, not within the actual pecked out areas that we're trying to date when we try to date the rock art image itself. And that, of course, is a problem. Yeah, definitely. 
Another thing that I found is weather it makes a big difference. I had the opportunity actually to go back out to one of my sites to collect some data on some of the images that I already had analyzed, but right after a rainstorm. So when I went out and used these three tools to collect reflectance information on these petroglyphs, I got really different data because there was enough water trapped inside these grooves that that influenced the ability of these instruments to give a reflectance ratio. And so one of the things I learned in this petroglyph research is that you have to allow enough time for these images to dry and not have any resident moisture at all in the grooves in order to get accurate and consistent readings. Well, let me again echo your interesting observation. I went out to Little Petroglyph Canyon for the first time in my 30 or 40 year association with that canyon. And it had rained unbelievable downpour. And we took a short trip down the canyon. I couldn't see much of anything. (laughs) (laughs) compared to what I see regularly going out to that canyon because there was so much moisture that was sucked up in the rocks that it totally occludes the imagery and the elements that I would normally have seen. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, huh? Yeah. Well, and in relation to what I was saying before, I would say that not all petroglyphs are created equal. So not only... Is the artistic technique an influencer? But I found in my study, too, that aspect, whether it's north, south, east, or west, whether it's vertical Mm -hmm. or horizontal on a rock or Mm -hmm. in an underhang, all of that, I think, influences varnish formation. And so what I suggested in the end of my thesis was future studies need to control for those various variables And then I think it's exciting. I would love to do this and hope that I can do it at some point. Go back out to these same sites and collect a lot of information because I said my sample sizes were too small. But collect a lot of information and separate those petroglyphs out by vertical, horizontal, in underhangs, east, west, north, south. And then begin to see if we can find uh, some consistent information about varnish darkness based on those various variables. I think that'd be really exciting. One of the oldest uh, styles of rock art in the desert West is a style called great basin carved abstract. Mm -hmm. And you must be aware of those. They're very deeply carved. They're almost sculptural in appearance. And I wonder if you had anything that was so deeply carved that it would appear to be the uh, darkest or what your experiences were working with those heavily grooved petroglyphs? Yes. Two of the sites, both Kokoraki Butte and Painted Rock, have some really deep carved images and they're in that abstract, almost geometric shape type that are heavily varnished. Were they the most heavily varnished or were they just heavily varnished? No, they weren't. And again, I'll go back to aspect. And it's one of the things I I kept in the appendix of my thesis. At a particular point up on Kokoraki Butte, there is a a bear print, a footprint, and then an abstract design that lie horizontally on rocks near some other vertical petroglyphs. Those were the darkest petroglyphs I saw during my whole study. And I was so intrigued by them that I did take readings on them. And they had came up with all three of the tools, the darkest ratings of any of the petroglyphs I'd seen. And they were more, like I said, they were more what people would suggest are recent because they're not abstract, they're not geometric. They represented, you know, animal and human prints. Would you uh, believe intuitively based on your experience of studying rock art as they were some of the oldest or not? 
No, I think it's because of the varnish formation and their location. I think if they were on a vertical surface, and certainly at Kokoraki Butte, we have handprint type petroglyphs that are on vertical surfaces that aren't that dark. They just don't pick up the varnish the same way. Yeah, I, I think the varnish formation has a lot to do with humidity. And of course, if something's on a vertical or a horizontal surface, it collects that moisture better. So there's, there's, there's a lot to learn. And I guess one of the other things that I learned, I used to Photoshop to analyze these digital photos, color corrected, like I said, to the IFRO card. But I learned later that technique is very labor intensive. I would not recommend it to anyone and can understand why Robert Bednarik did it on only seven petroglyphs. Because in the end, with his seven petroglyphs, he ended up analyzing 749 different pixels oh for the RGB word. values. You can imagine how many pixels I had to analyze with 80 petroglyphs. And so it becomes overwhelming. And I learned that other researchers are using Lightroom or other software programs that are a little more versatile. So I think there's a whole avenue there to explore of different software programs that can analyze digital color photographs corrected to something like the color checker passport or the DGK color card. And that would be interesting to to see if it wouldn't be easier because the most labor intensive process was the digital photograph analysis. The least time intensive was the light meter and the spectrophotometer fell between those. It wasn't very difficult either, but. Kirk, we're running out of time, but how would someone, a listener of this rock art podcast get a hold of you or access your thesis? They can get a hold of me at my email address, which is very simply my first and last name run together at gmail.com. My thesis is in the University of Arizona library. I've also submitted it to the TDAR database. And I'm right now working on an article that I hope to submit to a professional journal for publication to summarize some of the major points. Fantastic. Well, you performed a great service in doing the kind of scientific study you've alluded to here, and it's mm-hmm. been very helpful to spend an hour with you and listen to you reflect on this topic. And yeah. we, we really appreciate it, Kirk. You, it's been a wonderful interaction. Thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, gang. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.